Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought it'd be a good time to talk about how the Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine war is affecting other nations out there. Jim, what do you see? Well, actually, I'm working on a piece that'll run on the fourth about this, uh, the global war disruptions. The um, first of all, uh, Russia was surprised and how should I put it, humiliated, and that has ramifications. But there's also, you know, severe economic repercussions. We've already discussed the food problem. So much of the uh, the world exportable, you know, grains, especially wheat, uh, comes from uh, Russia and um, uh, and uh, Ukraine. And of course, with the sanctions, it's going to be hard to get that out. Now, some countries are, are more affected that, than it by others. I mean, the uh, the countries that depend the most on imported uh, uh, food, uh, grain, are in the Middle East. So we could expect to see some, we're already seeing some, you know, side effects there. The price of bread is going up in countries that cannot afford to have higher bread prices. Um, uh, uh, Afghanistan is already having problems and they're going to have it worse if they try and buy food. Nobody wants to really donate too much to them. And <clears throat> nobody's going to have enough, you know, really to spare for the, uh, uh, the new uh, Taliban government. Uh, the other problem is, that the Russians basically showed that their their military is a paper tiger. Now this is this hurts them on several levels. They're major arms exporters, and a lot of their customers are saying, "Hmm, not again," because this is what happened uh, at the end of the Cold War. The Russians said, "You know, we're reforming, we're going to fix things," uh, but it really hasn't had a major test until now, and they failed. Uh, the uh, you know, and, and they're probably already feeling you know uh, pushback from uh, their normal uh, export customers for weapons uh, because of the economic sanctions, which are making it difficult to pay for it. Um, now, uh, they Russia really did not expect the enormous you know uh, pushback from uh, Western Europe, which. Granted, they supply a lot of oil and natural gas to Western Europe, and they've already, they're already uh, threatening to cut off, a, was it Bulgaria and Poland, unless they're paid in rubles. And the rubles, that's, that's a, they, they put the ruble on the gold standard, and that's a, we explained that scam in the strategy page. But anyway, Poland and Bulgaria are basically saying no. So that's another big disappointment. The problem is that Russia is losing a lot of its export customers and if it gets them back, you know, assuming, you know, they pull out of uh, Ukraine, which is iffy, that's another problem. Um, they're they're going to find that they, they've their, their place has been taken. Uh, the Europeans, you know, in the 1990s, they thought, hey, you know, we can trust the Russians. Then the Russians said, hey, you know, it's like the scorpion and the frog. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't, you know, use it as a weapon against you. We'd only be hurting ourselves. Well, the scorpion did what the scorpion does. And uh, now they're hurting. Uh, the Europeans are scrambling like crazy uh, to get, uh, you know, uh, 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 liquid fuel. Uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the liquefied natural gas imports uh, to reactivate their, 
their nuclear uh, power uh, programs. Um, and uh, they're not going to make the same mistake again. Uh, so Russia is basically hurting itself a long time. Now, they also export a lot of other essential you know, minerals like titanium. But the United States, I think Raytheon is one of their major customers. Says, nope, we got to cut you off. We'll find another way. Uh, so I imagine the world price for uh, titanium is, is going through the roof. But, you know, Russians didn't expect the, the Western powers, uh, their Western customers to be willing to pay that price. Well, not only are, are they doing that, but the Russians are paying an even higher price because they became dependent upon uh, the West, especially Western Europe, uh, for a lot of, um, how should I put it, uh, component imports. And as we've already pointed out, uh, they can no longer manufacture new tanks and a lot of other, you know, uh, you know, uh, high, you know, technical equipment because they can't get the parts from their normal suppliers. Now they ran into that problem after 2014 when the Ukrainians started cutting them off, and they said, "Oh, that's right, we'll we'll build it themselves." Well, they still haven't recovered from some of those problems, and that was you know uh, eight years ago. Um, so the the new problems they're having are going to make it even more difficult for them to go back to the old self-sufficient, you know, Soviet days. Well, the Soviets weren't entirely self-sufficient. They had they had trashed their uh, their agricultural system so badly they were dependent upon food imports from the West. So the Russians can eat, still eat bread, but they can't you know fix their cars or their 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 aircraft or you know any number of other items where they're going to have a very difficult time uh, moving production back into uh, Mother Russia. Um, the uh, Russian government you know is trying to shift the blame to the unreliable foreigners. But again, in this day of the, the this age of the internet, where the where the Russians, you know, like unlike the Soviets, didn't have a, a near total lockdown on the news that Russians got. Uh, for those who are curious, uh, they're finding out. And of course, as more <coughs> parents, you know, look for their sons who were, you know, re- in the army or in the navy uh, on board. That's another disaster. The the cruiser Moscow. Actually, it's a destroyer. But anyway. Um, uh, they're, they're disputing the number of, um, uh, people who are actually on it. Moscow being a, a headquarters ship can hold as many as 680 people. Uh, normally it's complemented about 500, 510. And the Russians are not saying, well, there were actually less than 400 sailors on there, but eventually you have to let the parents know, well, what happened to my son, the sailor? Um, and that is slowly, how should I put it? being answered, you know, my son died in Ukraine and the, and the government isn't telling me. Now, it's against the law in Russia to even mention that openly. Uh, but, you know, they're going to have a hard time locking up the parents or the families of all the uh, uh, the missing soldiers and sailors. Um, uh, the, uh, they don't have to worry about the uh, missing pilots because they immediately found out that the um, Ukrainian made better use of their Russian anti-aircraft weapons than the Russians ever did. And it's not an, exactly a no-fly zone, but it's a risky-to-fly zone. And now the United States and other NATO countries have uh, made deals with the uh, the, the several uh, NATO members that have bought S-300 S, uh, systems, and they're being shipped to Ukraine, 
and being replaced by Patriot systems. Now, I, I, I'm not sure if that's it's temporary for the duration or you know permanent replacements, but there was the same arrangement was asked for in order to get aircraft, you know, late model MiG 29s, which many NATO countries are still, you know, have an active service, especially Poland. Uh, they were willing to give them up, but they said, look, United States or whomever, uh, give us a replacement because, you know, we have to worry about the Russians attacking us. Uh, so, you know, and apparently the United States has finally agreed to, uh, to do that, and they got to do it fast. Now, the United States also is, uh, is about to appropriate another $33 billion uh, worth of weapons, uh, most of its weapons, some of its economic uh, support, because the, uh, the uh, Ukrainian infrastructure is being damaged. The Russians can't beat the Ukrainians militarily. And uh, so now they're going to say, well, we're going to, you know, as the Romans used to put it, create a desert and call it peace. Well, they're literally doing that uh, in eastern Ukraine, although their advance, you know, they, they, they made big pronouncements about after they withdrew from northern Ukraine uh, in disorder, as it were, uh, that they're going to move their, their forces, reorganize, uh, replenish them, that whatever, whatever. They couldn't replenish them. They didn't manage to move them. And I saw satellite photos of them moving. They were moving in a militarily acceptable manner, in other words, with wide spacing between the aircraft, the, the vehicles. Because in the in the early stages of the invasion, these guys were breaking the basic tactical rule of uh, not bunching up. And a lot of those uh, those columns in uh, coming into uh, combat and support columns coming into Ukraine uh, were all bunched up and trapped. You know, it was the old trick of, you know, hitting the first vehicle and the last vehicle and then taking out the rest at, 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 as, you, as you wished. The Russians are uh, not been able to launch that major offensive. They are attacking in the east, trying to establish, you know, capture more of the Donbass. Those two provinces they thought were theirs. But that's something else the Russians discovered. Uh, this is not necessarily, you know, uh, earth-shaking news, you know, for the world. Uh, but they really thought that they could take Crimea, Don, uh, and the two provinces in, in Donbass, because those were the provinces that had a majority of Russian speakers. Well, and we've reported this before, uh, years ago, that a lot of those uh, those Russian speakers, as Russians as Russians in other, you know, uh, countries that were, you know, became independent, like the Baltic states and even Poland, they didn't want to go back to Mother Russia. You know, <laughs> you know they found that their prospects were better you know, in the West, and uh, this was the same situation in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, so the Russians are having a hard time explaining to their own people, why are we in uh, Ukraine? You can't call it a war. That's illegal. Uh, and uh, the Russians are saying, well, we we're going to liberate our fellow Russians, the Ukrainians, uh, because they want us. And that was quickly apparent that they weren't, they didn't want us. You know, and it was uh, people were saying, you know, they were calling the Ukrainians the Nazis, but basically the Russians are the Nazis, and the Ukrainians are defending, you know, Mother Ukraine, and doing it very effectively, more effectively than Stalin's uh, troops did. So, uh, it's the world turned upside down, and uh, you know, worldwide, uh, you know, customers for for Russian, uh, you know, exports are scrambling to find uh, new uh, sources. That new sources are out there. Uh, but they're expensive. Uh, another problem for Russia uh, is China. China is taking advantage of this. Uh, technically, they're an ally, but the Russians forget that the Chinese do not have allies. 
They either have trade partners or tributary states. I mean, the Chinese are, are quite clear on that. Most Westerners don't understand that. There is no such thing as a Chinese ally. And the Chinese now realize that the, uh, uh, the Russians are even less well prepared to protect the, uh, the disputed territories in the Russian Far East along the Pacific coast. Even Japan is taking advantage of this, this obvious weakness of the Russian military. They've had a longstanding, well, since World War II, dispute over who owns four of the Kuril Islands, which are between Russia and, uh, and, and Japan. The Russians occupied them at the end of the war. They were supposed to give them back, and they said, nah, I think we'll keep them. Well, now the Japanese are saying, well, maybe we'll take them back. And the Russians are, well, they're not really doing much of anything because they're preoccupied in Ukraine. So it's, uh, it's bad news for everyone. It's worse news for Russia. Well, uh, uh, Jim, the, the Japanese and Russians do have more than just a dispute right now in the Kuriles. The Russians have, uh, this, I read this uh, about 10 days ago, denied Japanese fishermen rights to go in and, and fish in an area that they've been letting uh, the uh, Japanese uh, use at least since the 1950s. And it's because of Japan's position on Ukraine. Yeah, uh, well, now, now the Japanese are saying, well, what if we send our warships? I mean, that's I know that. I know that. Japanese I just, have a much larger fleet, <laughs> you know, in the home islands than the I think the Russians do overall. Shades but, of 1905. You exactly. Know? I, I, think I mean, that, 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 that's troubling Russia. Because we thought we'd gotten over that, but we hadn't. I mean, there's been a disaster show ever since 05. If the Tsar had any sense, I mean, this is rewriting history. If the Tsar had any sense, he would not have gotten, in, you know, listened to the French and, uh, and, and tried to invade uh, Russia. The, that was the, what, the Tannenberg. Uh, and it was one disaster after another. Communists came along. I think the Russians are finally take, paying closer, closer attention to their own history because everybody else is. And, uh, it, it requires some fundamental changes in Russia. And that's got to worry the Russian leadership. And, you know, Putin was saying, you know, I'm going to rebuild the empire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now it looks like, you know, his rebuilding effort is going to collapse upon him and he'll have nobody to sue. Austin, where do you see the effects? Well, look, Jim, one of the first things Jim mentioned was... Uh, the food situation, and, and, and Jim handled really NATO's response and and, and Japan uh, on it. But oh, uh, we had a podcast. I'm not sure how many podcasts ago where I was mentioned Black Sea wheat, which is what uh, the Turks, uh, Middle Eastern, North African nations, uh, some uh, African. Uh, wheat importers as well, call the wheat coming from Russia and, uh, and Ukraine because they're being shipped out of Black Sea, uh, Black sea ports and then passed through the uh, Bosporus and Dardanelles for, for uh, going to uh, other markets. And Turkey, I know that we uh, had this in a Turkey update, has been even before the war started, but definitely after the war started, and I think that's when the the update, the date on this particular update, was scrambling to find uh, tens of millions of tons of 
of, of wheat. Uh, and it's, uh, they weren't getting it, but they expect to get it from Russia and, and Ukraine. In fact, is a, Ukraine's one of Turkey's larger uh, bilateral trade uh, partners. And a lot of that, it's not, it's not only built on turbine engines, uh, Ukrainian turbine <laughs> engines and Turkish drones. It's uh, Ukraine exporting, uh, exporting wheat. And those effects are felt, that, that food effect, I didn't know until I, uh, I, I knew that, that a lot of the fresh bread baked in a number of Arab countries uh, used, used, used wheat uh, uh, coming from Russia and, and Ukraine. I just didn't know how much. And then it's there, uh, other, other uh, countries in the region. Uh, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Egypt, uh, and Egypt it, it itself is a is a thriving agricultural exporter, but they're into uh, cotton and uh, other crops, and of course, but they they grow their own their own grains as well. But to make up make up uh, for a, a deficit, the Egyptians uh, import grain, and they typically import it from Ukraine. Uh, and Russia, uh, go down Africa's east uh, east coast, uh, same story. Uh, it, it, I found it intriguing that that what I knew was only about twelve uh, percent. Uh, what I recognized as a problem, <laughs> and only st understood it about twelve percent in when you, uh, when you started uh, looking at at uh, the amount of uh, of wheat. Uh, being imported by these uh, uh, countries, and, and that was in a—I uh, I found that in a in a in a PDF that uh, had had talked about uh, Turkey's uh, importing wheat from uh, U Ukraine and Russia. So that's a big effect, Dan. Ukraine's cut off, Russia's sanctioned, uh, Russian commercial ships can. Still move through the Turkish Straits, uh, its warships can, uh, but the Turks can also uh, cut it off uh, to uh, Russian commercial shipping if they feel that it, it is a quote unquote uh, uh, threat. Uh, and I thought this: this is completely. Uh, it was a, a stray thought, is that if the Russians were uh, shipping grain out to uh, uh, another importing nation. Why couldn't the Turks just stop it there and hold it? Same because they had they'd had uh, assuming that they'd had con contracted for uh, wheat uh, themselves. Uh, and uh, I, it, it just it was just a thought that they could <coughs> uh, take their share as it goes through the uh, uh, the, the Turkish Straits, uh, which being shipped on a, on a huge. Uh, cargo carrier that that's the only way out uh, of the Black Sea. Uh, Sweden and Finland, 2014 in Crimea shook them up. And suddenly you saw, actually, uh, to be fair to the Finns, it wasn't all that sudden because been a number of Finns um, there at the end of the Cold War, they know who their friends are and uh, their friends are uh, fellow Scandinavians and Western Europe, uh, 
Russia is not Finland's friend. But Sweden had, we know, a very active uh, uh, left-wing socialist government and a huge, quote-unquote, peace uh, uh, group. That uh, That's the only way to describe it, segment of the, of the uh, voting, uh, uh, voting adults that were, we're neutral, we'll stay neutral. But that shifted sharply with the invasion of Crimea and its annexation. And in the last eight years, We've reached a point where Sweden has uh, uh, polls somewhere between 55, 60 percent of, uh, of voters support joining NATO. And major parties have uh, that, uh, that once opposed uh, a NATO alliance have uh, are in the process of that. They're talking openly about it because they're. What are our choices? You see what a, a Russian dictator will do. And uh, you, we've co I covered this in, a, in three or four things I wrote in 2015 uh, about uh, Russian bluffs on uh, bluffed attacks on uh, islands and, and facilities uh, in the Baltic area and uh, uh, in in the uh, north, and I mean in north, I'm I'm talking about uh, the uh, Barents Sea area <clears throat> and uh, northern northern Norway. Uh, the the Nordics take this absolutely seriously, and at some point, uh, you know, when does the exercise turn into a real attack? Well, even in 2015, there there was some thought. Norway's in NATO. They're not going to hit Norway, but Sweden and Finland are. That's part of the of the of the change that you see uh, public change now uh, uh, in Sweden. Now, also Jim talked about other things that uh, within within NATO. I I think the obvious uh, conclusion is is that NATO realizes it still has a mission, and it's the most valuable. Uh, military political club on the planet to be in. There's even now talk uh, about saying, why don't we in include Australia and Japan in, uh, in NATO? That would be uh, a real extension of the North Atlantic, I suppose. Uh, but it's uh, not supposed, uh, uh, it, it would be because of the uh, deterrent effect on an aggressor of uh, 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 attacking a NATO country. All right, and let's look at some other, uh, Jim touched, touched on this, but China is affected by this, maybe in, in you know, raising it in, in, in so many ways. Uh, if Russia had pulled off its, uh, its blitzkrieg and just rolled uh, Ukraine, uh, the Chinese, I believe, would have gotten the message, let's go after Taiwan, yeah, because they, the Chinese got a lot more aggressive in the South China Sea uh, after uh, March 2014 when uh, Putin annexed uh, Crimea. You had a lot of activity uh, in, the, in the paracels 
with China just coming in and shoving the Vietnamese out and we're going to drill here and it's our oil. And I, I, I said that call that China's reaction uh, using the Crimean precedent. Well, now that they've seen what a nation in arms type tactic can do to the, a vaunted or at least, <clears throat> well, a highly oversold, but the Russians said they had a juggernaut. Now what they see what a nation in arms can do, people fighting you, also technically competent uh, uh, people, uh, might uh, cool some uh, ardor to uh, invade Taiwan. Uh, I, 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 once I've been to Taiwan, well, I got really twice, but once I got a chance to look at some of the <clears throat> down on their on their east east coast. Just driving down the road, here are all these airfields uh, built back into mountains. It was reminiscent of Sweden. They uh, had all this hardened uh, and, and and hardened facilities, command control uh, hangars. Uh, and uh, I was told, well, there's similar places on the western side. You just don't, you just don't see them. Uh, they dug in, able to hold out. Well, they let that. That was the idea. That was the idea from the <clears throat> from the first uh, 25 years after the end of the of the uh, uh, Chinese Civil War and uh, the, R the Reds' victory. That they were just going to hold out. No matter no matter what the uh, red Chinese did, and that began to, with the <clears throat> the rapprochement. Uh, uh, Taiwan uh, didn't ever drop entirely drop its defenses, but it was it, it seemed to be less urgent, uh, less pressing. Well, not anymore. Twenty fourteen, Crimea, U Ukraine, the Taiwanese are out there. Working, you know what they're what diplomatic channels uh, they have, saying we don't want this to happen to us. We need weapons, and that's something that China has, uh, you know, de uh, deplores. But I, I think it's coming. It is coming, and there's a there's an effect of the war uh, uh, in the on the other side of the uh, other side of the globe. And, and I guess another thing to add to this too is that. <clears throat> The entire world's affected by energy prices, and and we live in the United States. We see a a jump of two dollars and fifty cents a gallon in in some some cases. I know somebody's gonna write and say you're wrong, Bay. It's three dollars and fifty cents. Okay, I'm sorry you live in California, but the uh, uh, we we've seen all of us have seen that, but in uh, developing countries, you know, the truly poorest of the poor, it just oil price acts like that, uh, petroleum price acts, just savage. They're already uh, weak economies because of uh, it's not uh, not just for fuel. It raises the price. It even raises the price of uh, of uh, imported agricultural goods. It certainly raises the price that they have. Of producing uh, uh, their their own agricultural operations, so and this war, of course, uh, involves one of the world's largest oil producers, Russia, and Russia's the aggressor. 
Russia must be sanctioned. And that that really does put the rest of the world into the war. You know, I'm angry because I don't get my Russian gas and, uh, and oil. That, that's one take on it. Or, oh, I'm just going to have to put up with it because what what Putin, a Putin-led Russia is doing is evil. And uh, you know, we've got to stop it. The Russians have to lose. And once they lose, Biden starts selling his gas again. You know, it's, it's only logical. But the, the effects are profound. That's what I'm saying. So, Jim, what's the outlook right now on to this, co- this coming to a close? Well, the problem is that Putin has pushed, pushed himself into a corner. I mean, he's really he's lost the most, so to speak, in terms of reputation, uh, in terms of you know respect for his military and, and diplomatic and economic acumen. He basically bet it all on victory in um, in Ukraine. Now there there have been talk of some kind of you know negotiated peace, but you know with Zelensky, Ukraine has made it clear they want all of their territory back, and they're not going to get a lot of pushback from outside anybody except Russia. Um, and it, it seems that the Russians their their current offensive uh, is is failed. Um, and, uh, you know, and now even Mariupol, the, the city they basically declared captured, you know, for weeks is still holding out. In fact, one, one story I unverified was that the Ukrainians were, were flying in helicopters, flying in supplies at night using helicopters. Now, this is what they allegedly did, you know, with the, uh, the raid on, uh, on fuel facilities, uh, just across the border in Russia. Um, whatever the case. The Marines and the Azov Battalion, the Azov Battalion are, you know, politically it, politically unacceptable to everybody because they have, you know, sort of neo-Nazi, uh, you know, uh, tendencies. But they sided with the Ukrainians, and uh, so they're, 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 they're Ukrainian Marine brothers and various other, you know, troops they have in there are willing to, you know, do a Stalingrad. And the uh, so if the Ukrainians can... Can basically, you know, uh, rescue, as it were, or, or keep uh, Mariupol alive. Uh, you know, the Russians are, are are going to have not much hope left. Um, uh, they're 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 losing ground in some areas. The, the Ukrainians are going on the offensive, and now the United States and other countries are sending in a lot of armored vehicles. Uh, not just, I mean, basically. Uh, Ukraine, although they, they, they go back and forth on whether or not they would ever join NATO, they are basically a NATO member, <laughs> except in every, in every situation but name. Now, you can't have large numbers of, of, uh, of uh, NATO ground troops in there, but there are a lot of uh, NATO troops in Ukraine for training, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, <clears throat> they're, keeping, they're helping to keep the uh, uh, supply lines open. Uh, the uh, Ukrainians are allowed to uh, are able to send their damage. Their railroads are still functioning, even though the, the Russians are now attacking the railroads. Uh, the problem with the railroads is they they were basically weaponized or you know militarized. Well, they were always militarized, as are the Russian railroads. But the Russia the Ukrainians hardened their railroad system after 2014. Uh, and it's become a target. The Russians said, well, we haven't got too many missiles left. 
they they basically blown their their war their war reserve. Uh, you notice there are fewer missile attacks, and each one makes big news. Um, but the Russians have lost their offensive punch. Uh, they're apparently having trouble getting soldiers. You know, the conscripts are technically can't go or won't go. Uh, the contract soldiers, the, you know, the all the volunteer troops uh, are refusing to um, uh, not only refusing to to uh, renew their contracts, but some of them are trying to get out of their contracts. They're refusing to go into Ukraine. So they may have moved more vehicles over to uh, these battle battalion task groups, these battalion task forces uh, over to uh, uh, the east. But they can't send them in. Well, if they do send them in, they're going to go in, you know, with skeleton crews. Um, and the Ukrainians are getting, you know, thousands and thousands of additional anti-tank weapons. I think they've already gotten nearly 5,000 uh, javelins, uh, which is causing problems in Europe and the United States. Uh, because, you know, we, we're, we're finding out that our, our, how should I put it, the war reserve is a, is a stockpile of weapons that are supposed to be sufficient for a war for the first 30 to 60 days so that production in the home country can get up to speed to, to replace you know, combat losses or, or supply combat needs. Well, we discovered during the Cold War that we were over-optimistic. Uh, that was first demonstrated literally in the 1973 war with the uh, Arab-Israeli war where you know, we had access to the you know, Israeli expenditures. And their, their ammunition expenditures and expanded, military expenditures in general were far higher than we anticipated in, uh, in Europe. And, uh, and uh, the war reserve is difficult in a democracy to, to build up because it's not a sexy you know, budget item. Uh, and say, well, I think we really, you know, the politicians say, do we really need that? And it needs, you, you need something like Ukraine to say, yes, we do. Look what happened to Ukraine. Look what happened, to, well, look what happened to Russia. But the uh, the uh, the Russians don't have the the personnel. They don't have the weapons, and uh, and that's a lesson to uh, to uh, to NATO countries that uh, you have to really be able to um, uh, to build to rebuild those reserves. Now, some uh, NATO countries can build a lot of American weapons, high tech weapons, under license, and now they're considering getting more licenses and and more production. Now, granted, that costs you a lot more money. Because in peacetime, most of those production facilities uh, are idle and, you know, just an economic drain. But, you know, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a wartime need, well, that wasn't a waste of, of time and money a after all. And that is another lesson that is coming through uh, loud and clear. Now, the Russians have not got the capability of building up a war reserve. They, they, we found that out when they went into, uh, into Syria and even Libya. That they they had designed you know smart bombs and what have you, but they could not afford to build many of them. So they basically had to do the best they could, you know, with um, uh, with dumb bombs, which you can do a lot more with dumb bombs now because the the guidance systems, the uh, the fire control systems on on aircraft, even the United States, uh, you can deliver them pretty accurately at area targets, uh, and that worked perfectly in Syria where the Russians are mostly bombing civilians. Um, but they can't even use their air power in, uh, in Ukraine because it, the, air, the airspace is contested. And they don't want to be further embarrassed by losing a lot of their precious aircraft, which they also can't replace uh, because of the parts shortage. Um, so the, the, uh, the lessons learned are that if you cannot overcome 
a an enemy, uh, you know, technical advantage, or even sustain your own, you know, technology as inferior as it might be, you are in big trouble. And that brings up the question of what was Putin thinking? We may never know, but the number of his close advisors uh, and um, and people who were supposed to, you know, and analyze the situation in Ukraine have either, you know, uh, fired or quit. And some have left the country uh, because, you know, the, 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 the master is not happy. Uh, and Putin basically uh, cannot find a, how should I put it, an, a, uh, a face-saving way out. Uh, the Ukrainians, you know, are showing every intention and capability of pushing the Russians out. And if they lose Crimea, which they could well do, uh, as well as the the Donbass province, the, the half of the two Donbass provinces that the Russians grabbed in 2014, uh, and then were stalemated, uh, Putin will be t- entirely disgraced at home. And uh, although he's he's basically he's been ruling the country for 20 years illegally, you know, by basically uh, take using his Duma, his parliamentary majority, while well, he used he he used corruption to get the the, the majority. And he, you know, basically took away a lot of local democracy in Russia. Uh, he, he appoints the uh, provincial governors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not only is he going to lose that, but, you know, I think Russia is going to go through another transformation and say, you know, maybe we should go back to, you know, the early 90s before Putin came along. Now, the problem in the early 90s was, 90s was Russia still had the corruption problem. Ukraine does to a certain extent as well. There's been, despite the war... There's, it's been found that there's been some, you know, corruption in the uh, in in the, in the Ukrainian uh, military procurement and use, but not nearly as bad as in Russia. And uh, unlike in um, uh, in in Russia, uh, the uh, the Ukrainian, you know, kleptocrats, they do get if they get found out, they get arrested, they get jailed. Uh, and that just doesn't happen in Russia. If you get out of line in Russia. You know, one of the the uh, oligarchs. Uh, you just lose everything and go to jail. They, they they did that to one or two of the oligarchs, and the rest stayed in line. But now they're worried because their overseas assets, not just yachts, uh, but their their tremendous investments, including cash deposits uh, overseas, have been have been frozen, and so they're taking a major hit. And they don't, they don't dare strike back because you know Putin can still have them rounded up and you know killed or whatever. Um, but you know, basically, you know, uh, Russia is never going to be the same. You know, well, he didn't capture P- Ukraine. He's on the he's on the way to losing it, given that the uh, the the uh, the Ukrainians have, are, are receiving better and better weapons, uh, you know, including a lot of Western stuff. I don't know. I, they're getting the T seventy twos, but I, and they're getting Western APCs. I don't know if they're actually going to. I think they Zelensky asked for M1s or Leopards, uh, and I think that's still being debated. Uh, but what the heck, you know? They've already they've already got so many NATO weapons in there uh, that were not in there before 2022. I mean, the, the NATO was already shipping in a lot of weapons to Ukraine before the invasion, uh, and they basically drew the line on the on the high ticket items, you know, like the modern tanks and what have you. Fortunately, Ukraine is a major arms manufacturer it always was during the uh, the Soviet years and they kept doing that I mean they were they were stuck with the largest stockpile of Cold War surplus and they've been refurbishing and selling that off you know for years 
they kept a lot of the good stuff, and they they updated it. And like I say, when the Russians uh, bombed or or missiled, as it were, uh, some of the plants that that did that, uh, they they said, hey, just get them on the on your still functioning railroad, you know, ship them to us. And, uh, and for all I know, they they've shipped the Ukrainian engineers and some of the the equipment <laughs> to Poland, what have you. And said, you can do it here. You can take it, you know, you can move it back after you've beaten the Russians. So everybody in NATO considers, you know, uh, Ukraine one of them because they all realize that if they don't stop the Russians in Ukraine, they're next, especially you know, the, uh, the new, the, new uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, and Romania. Um, and Russians have threatened all those countries. And they're saying, well, what the heck, you know, we're always at risk anyway. That's why we joined NATO. The Russian. Well, a lot of Russians, especially Putin, couldn't get his, his head around the fact that these countries were not being bought out or tempted by the West to join NATO. They they wanted to join NATO. Uh, and, uh, and so was Ukraine, you know, when the uh, when the when the the, 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 the main revolution that took place in uh, in uh, early 2014, that's that triggered this whole uh, you know thing off. Um and I think a lot of Russians are realizing that, that we are the enemy. You know, they're not plotting against us. They just want to be defended against us. So I think that's a fundamental change that may actually take this time. We thought that would happen after the Soviet Union collapse. But I think it took, uh, you know, a booster shot, shall we say, <laughs> for the, uh, the cure to take hold. That, well, that's what I meant by galvanizing NATO. NATO yeah. says, hey, yeah. we have a raison d'etre again. Oh. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, even, uh, for, even for countries that aren't aren't officially members yet. <laughs> well, look, Jim, when you 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 talked about the uh, NATO's Eastern Front and, and uh, NATO members and uh, Ukraine, the, the the wannabe member, Poland. Now Slovakia has a border with Ukraine, but the Poland and the Czech Republic. I'm, I'm certain the foreign offices of, of all those nations have, have used this phrase where they come out and said, the Ukrainians are fighting for us. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and any, I, you know, I think the French would say that given some of their action, Britons think so. I mean, that Boris Johnson didn't use that phrase quite, but showing up as he did to run around with Zelensky. Uh, he, you know, he, he said some things where, Pretty darn strong for for how you know how uh, the UK uh, and he hoped the rest of Europe would support Ukraine, which is right in line with what you're saying. They're a de facto NATO member, and uh, you know, boomerang on Putin, boomerang. It's certain things. Maybe it'd make a deal of neutralizing Ukraine, and you and I sort of touched on this in a maybe two or three podcasts ago, a possible deal. And Zelensky's already put it on the table. We'll, we'll be neutral, just like Austria. And uh, we get our land back and the war's over. Then we talk about, you know, destruction and the like, but, the, you know, the shooting's over, got to cease fire uh, or, or whatever. I, it's, it's, the war's probably, I say probably, moved past that as a solution. And... Mariupol. Mariupol figures into any off-ramp for Putin, and the fact it continues to hold out is is like heaven. It's that's not a thorn. It, it's like a, a a steel stake stuck in the uh, in the side. 
of, uh, of, uh, of Putin, because when Mariupol's there, he doesn't have the uncontested land bridge to Crimea. And that if he gets that, and I, I pointed this out, I think one of the first podcasts we did uh, after February, uh, after February 24th, that that's going to be key. He's going to go after that because that's a minimum that he wants coming out, out of Russia through the Donbass and, 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 and down to Crimea. But then, Jim, you compared it to Stalingrad, which I, looking at the place, perfect comparison. But one of the British tabloids I, I look at that has uh, uh, darn good uh, coverage of, of Ukraine, the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine war, quoted uh, a Ukrainian, I think he was in the defense ministry, had his, had his name there as saying, Mariupol is our Alamo. Which for a Texan like me, I got that, but I, it was like, uh huh. And he, the, the gist of it is they're tying up so many troops there, they can't, you know, uh, BTGs that they can't use them elsewhere. And this was when there were still uh, Russian forces trying to contest uh, Kiev and, and uh, Kharkiv. Uh, before before the withdrawal, I don't know how many BTGs they were uh, were uh, in Mariupol, but it was certainly more than Ukrainian troops uh, still holding out at that uh, huge steel factory. So uh, rather amazing that there's there's they're still there. Uh, four thousand, I think three or four thousand Marines uh, uh, who were not in. Uh, in the able to get into the bunkers or right and ran out of out, out of, of ammo and food did surrender. I haven't haven't gotten an accurate uh, number on that, but that they did surrender and the Russians took them prisoner uh, took them prisoner. But uh, there's still you said it's the Azov battalion. Sometimes it's called the Azov brigade, and there are still some Marines that are uh, holding out in those uh, that huge tunnel system underneath the steel plant. So. It's a political, it's a, it's, it's a, has uh, strategic political implications. That's the way to word it. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again in two weeks as it does not look like it's coming to an end. We'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Bye, Dan. See you then. Bye-bye.